please, Lord, give me grace to share what you put on my heart. And Father, to be faithful with the assignment you've given me. It is, it is one thing to be assigned by man, but it is another thing to be assigned by holy God. And Father, I confess that I'm utterly in my flesh, unable to, to do this assignment, to even begin to complete it. But I know that the sacrifice laid on the altar, you will consume. And I pray this morning in the name of Jesus that you would do just that. And that somehow this uh, feeble, faltering tongue, this clay jar, would be a, a, a tool you could use if you care to, Lord. And we would be blessed if you would glorify your name this morning. Come by your spirit and do that which we cannot do. Come and walk among us that we might never be the same. We don't just want a good message this morning, God. We've, we're thankful for good messages and we've heard many of them in our lifetime. But we want to meet you this morning and we thank you and praise you and worship you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. I wish to greet each of you this morning in Jesus' name. It's a blessing to see all that have gathered in. I am thankful for everyone that could be here all weekend. I'm thankful for those who have just been able to gather in this morning. And I believe that your presence here is uh, an indication of your heart to seek God. Um, none of you had to come. There was no compulsory attendance to come out to uh, Mount Olivet this morning. Um, you, you, didn't, you didn't have to come here. It wasn't going to um, earn you a brownie point in your local attendance or any such thing. And so I believe that that's an indicator that you have one heart and it's a common seek God. And that's why we're here um, this morning. Um, I would just like to say in the word of introduction that if uh, what we received in the prayer this morning, in the prayer meeting and, and last night and, and so forth, um, then there's going to just be one message today. It may have different human speakers and different subject titles, but um, I believe that the Lord wants to preach one message to us today. And it is, uh, I believe the Lord has laid it on my heart to, to lead into the first part. And um, we're trusting the Lord to uh, anoint our brother Dale to complete that message in whatever he's given him. Um, I hardly know where to start this morning. Sense such a, a dependency on God. Um, I know this the subject is a subject that's very dear to my heart. It's very dear to the Lord's heart. It's been decorated and adorned with the blood of many martyrs and many saints. And brothers and sisters, I wonder if we really realize what's been given to us and if we're thankful as we ought to. And if that thankfulness shows in our lives. On October 27, 1523, there was a meeting in Zurich, Switzerland. The city council decided at that time to prohibit the use of images in the church buildings and declared the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church concerning the Mass was false. Following this decision, a young student and Bible study member by the name of Conrad Gribble stood up and addressed the council, asking that the council give instruction on the future celebration of the Lord's Supper, Supper, formerly called the Mass. The council had ruled that the Mass was not right, but what was right? Ulrich Zwingli, the priest of Zurich and the leader of the Bible study and discussion group that Conrad was a part of, 
replied for the council. He said that it was necessary to leave to the city council the decision as to the timing and the ways and means of carrying out the proposed reforms. He's closed by saying, the council will discern how the mass should henceforth be properly observed. In response to Zwingli's answer to Conrad Grebel, another member of Zwingli's study, study group, Simon Stomp, stood up and addressed Zwingli. And in these words that have echoed down through time, he said, Master Ulrich, you have no authority to place the decision in the council's hand for the decision is already made. The Spirit of God decides. If therefore the council were to discern and decide anything that is contrary to God's decision, I will ask Christ for his Spirit and I will teach and act against it. Do we realize what this young man did when he did that? And the course of action and that he outlined for his life and how he stepped across that line. And the question for you and for I this morning is do you, do we believe that today? And more unquestionably, more importantly, the question, does our life prove it? By the grace of God, I would like to talk about another group of men. Men who stated they believe firmly in the Lordship of Christ, the inerrancy of the scriptures, they believed that salvation was by faith alone, stood against the teachings of Rome, and some of them, Brother Aaron, Joel, and some of you, were Bible translators. Many of them spend much time in the Word. There was a very great difference, though, between this group of men and the little study group I talked about previously. Wherever these men preached and taught, the overall effect was a lower standard of morality than existed even under Rome's rule. These men that I'm talking about were commonly known as the Reformers. What was the difference between these two, two groups? You may be surprised at the answer that I give, but I want you to think about it. And if you don't agree, that's okay. But I want you to pray, and I want you to search the Scriptures, and I want you to think about this answer, the difference between those two groups of men. Maybe you're thinking uh, something about the practical application of Scripture. Or maybe you say, uh, was there a lack of brotherhood commitment? Maybe that comes to your mind. Maybe that's what you think the difference is. Maybe you could think about a lot of different things. But I would like to suggest this morning the difference between these men and the men that were hunted for their lives and that sealed their faith with their blood was one simple word, and it was the word faith. Maybe you're thinking, but Brother Merle, uh, don't you know history? Don't you know that some of these men, that was their pivotal doctrine, was the doctrine of faith? Maybe you're thinking, I need to go back and study the history a little better. You can begin to turn with me to some of our text verses this morning, James two fourteen to 18. I was once in a Bible study group with some dear Amish brothers. And one of the, those brothers said these words, and I'll never forget it. He said, why do we come out so different from some of these leaders 
when we say the same thing? What, why, why, why is there this tension? And why are they way over here? And, and we're way over here. And we're getting persecuted for believing in Jesus. And, and I, I'm not, I want to be careful. I'm not here to condemn any group. That's not my heart. And I believe there's, there's people, uh, in those circles that have faith. But in this particular, uh, setting, there was, there was men that were bound in the spirit of religion, were persecuting Christians. And they said, why do we come out so different? We say the same thing. And there was a brother that answered that question and he said these words. Because it's not about what we say. That isn't what what is going to stand the, the, the test in the last day. It's not going to be about what we say. But it's about who we are and how we live. It's been said many times the road to hell is paved by good intentions. And I might add that decorated with uh, those good intentions are decorated with religious talk and right doctrine. And though I believe in right doctrine and would not want to minimize that at all, it is not in our theology nor in our doctrinal position that is we are going to be judged in the last day. I was with a group of brothers the other week and, and uh, together we were fellowshipping and, and one of the brothers raised this concern as they were uh, stepping out into a mission endeavor in a rather dark place. Uh, no, uh, seemingly no little, no or little clear witness of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this brother said, how, how can we know? You know, there was even a brother that came to them sharing this concern. Uh, the world may just suck you in. He said, how can I know? How can I know it's going to be safe for my children? How can I know that we can preserve, uh, suffering love or non-resistance or, uh, separation from the world in our attire and, and, uh, you know, modesty, things like that. And we'll call that brother, um, brother Harold. That wasn't his name. But, uh, I said to brother Harold, it's not about writing those things down on paper. I'm not against writing what you believe on paper. We talked about the written word some yesterday. But I told him, I said, it's not about those things, but it's what happens when the neighbor steps on your toes and does something you don't like. I said, when you lay down your life for him, then you will preserve the doctrine of suffering love. But if you don't do that, and yet you stand and hold a doctrinal position, say, this is what we believe, and you take your pride and your identity in that, then you stand in a dangerous place. And I said, if your wife is looking through the uh, catalog uh, of things that you can buy, and her 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 she lingers on things that she knows she shouldn't have, and well, it would just be nice. That is where you lose the doctrine of simplicity and the doctrine of separation from the world and its fashions. It's not when you make the, the order out or when you go to the department store and when you put those different clothes on or whatever the case may be. It's in the life. And this is something that these saints that I've talked about here understood very well. They understood about the life. And they understood that we learn by doing. And they understand that it's in doing we understand. And I so appreciate the title of this uh, this this time. Uh, it would have been okay to write the title the faith imperative of the word. There would have been nothing wrong with that. That could have been a blessing. Um, it would have been right to talk about obedience. And that would have been okay. But I am very blessed that the two were put together in one. Because it is coming to man to try to obey and do things 
without believing. It's coming to try harder. Let's read James 2, 14 to 18. What is the profit, my brethren? If anyone say he have faith but have not works, can faith save him? Now, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one from amongst you say to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, but give not to them the needful things for the body, what is the profit? So also faith If it have not works, it is dead by itself. But someone will say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I from my works will show thee my faith. Maybe this morning, as we think about those words, you're you're thinking, well, I'm glad that we're we're not like those folks out there. Maybe you're thinking, "Um, I'm glad we don't believe like that. Uh, maybe you're thinking, I'm glad to be part of a fellowship that believes in applying the Bible and the all things of the Scripture. Can I ask you this morning to take off your umbrella? You know what an umbrella listener is? Somebody who has something over their head and deflects it over there for Brother A and Sister C and all those things. The people out there, boy, they really ought to hear that. Maybe you need to take that umbrella and take it up over center and put a little hole in it and turn it into a funnel. This morning, let's just not think about everybody else. But the question this morning is, what does my life prove? Does my life prove a faith? Does it prove a faith that's worth dying for? Is it the faith once delivered to the saints? Let's be examiners of ourselves. Let's don't assume things. Let's examine if we're in the faith. That's what Paul would write to us. Can I suggest this morning that a look around at the professing body of Christ, including many of our plain circles, I see much that resembles having right doctrine, but so precious little of the faith that works. So precious few saints and assemblies full of the presence of Almighty God. So much trying to do it, but so little. Faith-based, faith-born lives. One day, I was in another state, and the Lord had led me that morning to preach on, um, if I remember right, the sufficiency of Christ in the person of His Spirit. And I poured my heart out and what the Lord had given me uh, that morning. And after after that uh, sharing time, they opened it up and uh, passed the mic around. People gave testimonies and prayer concerns and things. And in the back, there was a man who stood up, and he... Uh, he took that mic, and um, as I listened to what he had to say, my heart fell. I was very disappointed. I felt like I'd failed him, that I had not gotten the message through. And this is what he said. Messages like this used to overwhelm me when I listened to them. And that's good. It's good to be overwhelmed when we see the standard of holy living and of Christ himself. It's good to be dependent and crying out to him. But this is what he said. But now he said it doesn't overwhelm me because I just take a little bite and I just work on that. And both his words and his life evidence that that's exactly what he was doing. Instead of 
trying for the big picture. He was just trying for a little bit. If that's what you do this morning, then you will have utterly missed the, the cry of this message, the cry that God wants to put in our heart of a faith that works. But if you listen to what God is saying to us this morning, and you cry out for Him to make you one of them, and you put your all on the altar, and you say, by life or by death, I must know you, and I must prove you, and I must manifest you to the world, then He will come and meet with you. There's one word that stands out to me this morning. is the word imperative. I'd like to just take a moment to focus on the word imperative. The reason that the word imperative is so um, important is because of all the meaning that is tied up in that word. Imperative implies something very important, something almost urgent. But it also implies a choice. I should do something about it, we heard yesterday. I must do something about it, but will I do something about it? Will I, by faith, choose His way? It is imperative, but God has given us a choice. He has chosen in this age to be glorified most by by the choice of man. He has given us that. And He has chosen mostly to limit Himself to, to working within that realm. And that is one of the things that gives me courage and gives me zeal and and and. and uh, just gives me a long to empty my very soul out. If by chance I might touch one person that would step across that line and say, yes, I will choose. And yes, I will make him king. And yes, I will make him Lord. Some of you know the story of the battle of the Alamo. Uh, a story from the kingdoms of this world when they were uh, saw that the time of their end was near. No reinforcements were going to come. And the Spanish uh, uh, Mexican army or whatever it was was gathered around. And the, the, the commander of that fort at a pivotal moment, took his hand and he reached down in the sand there in Texas and he drew a line. He said, men, if we surrender, we'll probably die anyhow. I don't know about that. But I'm calling you men to be men of valor. I'm calling you men to to give your lives for a cause. And I'm going to draw a line here in the sand. I'm going to ask you to make a decision. can, can we hear that general say, it doesn't matter right now what your feelings say. That isn't the important thing. It doesn't matter about a lot of things right now. It matters one thing that you make that decision. And when you step across that line and join me on this side, you're making a covenant. You're making a commitment. I will spill my blood for this cause. For this king, I will die. And I will do it now. History tells us, if it's reliably reported, that the first person to make his way across that line was a cripple. A man who had, by the world's standard, limited fighting ability. But you know that line wasn't about fighting ability. It wasn't about any of those things. It was about a cause and a commitment to a cause. Faith is a decision this morning. Every one of us um, is being faced with. As a young Christian, I read the lives of what sometimes are called spiritual greats. Men like J. Hudson Taylor, George Mueller, and many of these men down through lives, uh, time that had done amazing conquests for the kingdom of God. 
And said, God, I want, I want to be like one of them. I want that great faith. I want to see miracles happen and all those things. But it didn't take very long till the Lord took me behind the pages of the novels to the pages of the real men. Just yesterday or the other day in our prayer group, a brother was saying about he read the, the big book of the biography of J. Hudson Taylor. And there was one thing that stood out to that brother as he read that was how much he suffered. Faith is a, is a decision. Faith puts yourself on a crush course with the inevitable. Faith causes you to make decisions that are going to get you in trouble. And if God doesn't go, uh, come through, you're going to fall flat. You don't have backup plans when you cast yourself on Jesus by faith. The problem with many of us is we don't, we aren't ready for that kind of faith. We want faith that believes God and claims His promises and gives testimonies and all those things. But we aren't willing to put the path of escape between us and the tree, so to speak, when we're on the limb. We aren't willing to step out that way. We want a backup plan. If this doesn't work, let's go to plan B. And I learned as I studied the lives of many of these men that the reason they saw the great miracles was primarily because of the cry, the, the, the cry of desperation. Because they had made these decisions by faith. Because they took this word and said, I will obey King Jesus. I will follow His Lordship no matter what it costs. Like Simon Stump, though it costs me my life, I will stand up for this Scripture. Fifteen months later, on January 21, 1525, these same men, along with other members of the study group, suited action to thought. The council had said, not only may, uh, I believe it was Grebel and Munns, I don't remember the names. Not only may they not teach publicly, we want them to be quiet and stop stirring things up. They are forbidden to meet. Immediately, they got together on the authority of the Scriptures and they said, what shall we do? They were ordered to have their infants baptized and they said, we will not bow down to your heathen God today. A number of years later, most of those men had all died. And they knew it. They, there was no question in their mind at that time in January 1525 what it was going to cost them. Through they, their tears, they saw their families fatherless. They knew the sword would follow them. They knew those things and they said, even unto death we shall do it. I've heard many of you this weekend say you're standing at a crossroads. You're looking for direction. And that's a very good place to be. And I'm very thankful to have a crowd that has so many people at those crossroads. In some ways, there's some things in my life that I'm at crossroads like that. But the greatest crossroads that must be settled this morning, if you want a clear direction in those areas of your life, is the crossroads of the Lordship of our, our Lord Jesus. And when we say even unto death, and when we say whatever you show me, I will do, it's not if, Lord, just show me, and it's already settled, you have my commitment on it then it gives us a safe place to hear His voice. But if we don't walk in the light that we have, how can we expect that He'll show us more? We'd like to look at um, three points on the imperative. Why the imperative? Hindrances to fulfilling the imperative and then fulfilling the imperative. Why the imperative? We already touched on a bit. But I'd say the number one reason for the imperative 
Number one reason the ball's in our court and we have a choice is, is that it's for His glory and He is worthy. That's what we were created for. You know, even if we served God like a dog and died like a dog or went to hell, it would be morally right to serve King Jesus. We're so thankful He's given us mercy. But the morally right thing to do, the just thing to do, though we wouldn't do it because we're we're anarchists and enemies of God and rebellious, yet still, laid on our life is a moral obligation to serve our Creator because He is worthy of that. I believe in preaching the mercy of God. I believe in preaching deliverance from eternal judgment. But I wonder sometimes if the reason our, our churches and our assemblies are so dead and there's so little life and there's so little zeal is because we have not caught the reason for our existence. Young people are growing up. Last night I was sharing with a man um, about a certain uh, church setting and situation and uh, many uh, families from my age down are struggling to find who am I and where do I belong and where am I going? Young man, young lady, when you settle this question and you're bent on His glory, even at the cost of your life, you won't struggle with that question anymore. It will only be the question how. And show me the way, Lord. I would love to take some time going into the throne room, but... I believe the Lord's already ministered through our brother Joel. That's for the sake of time. Maybe we won't spend a lot of time there. But where the angels cry, holy, holy, holy. And all is spotless. We pray thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Another reason for the imperative. Why the imperative? It is a means of the expanse of his kingdom. Going to read one verse from Matthew and one from First Peter. If he is worthy, and if we are servants of the king, then living obedient lives by faith should be very important to us because we are about the king. It is a means of the expanse of his kingdom. Let your light thus shine before men so that they may see your upright works and glorify your Father who is in the heaven. 1 Peter 2.12 Having your conversation or walk of life honest among the Gentiles, that as to that in which they speak against you as evildoers, they may through your good works themselves witnessing them, seeing them, taking note of them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Not only is it the means of the expanse of His kingdom, we touched on it earlier, our salvation is dependent on it. I would like to settle something in our minds, brothers and sisters. When we come before the judgment seat of all the earth, are we going to be judged in our intentions? Are we going to be judged on our declaration of faith? Is that what the Scriptures tell us we're going to be judged on? Are we going to be judged because we agreed with the orthodox standard of the church and uh, we preached orthodox doctrine? We're going to be judged on our works. I've often wondered, how, how can that be, Lord? 
that you will judge on our works. How can that be a safe thing? And I believe one of the reasons why it's so safe for God to judge us on our works is because he knows all the works. Men don't always know all the works. They can see certain ones that impress men. But God knows all the works. And because of that, he knows what kind of faith is inside. And one more reason why the imperative Two more, actually, I want to share. The one is, it's a command, and it's a measure of our love for Christ. Christ wants to know, he told Peter, do you love me, Peter? I have some work for you to do. I want you to walk a journey. And Peter, I've been watching your life. I've been seeing some things, Peter. And there's a question on your life about how much you love me. There was a real question on Peter's life. And he was a little frustrated, like some of us are, when we're called to accountability and and. But, you know, he couldn't do anything about it. The facts were there. He had said, I don't know the man. And right now he was going back to fishing because it was the only thing that he knew that was comfortable to do. And Jesus said, Jesus knew. He knew one day Peter would be full of the Holy Ghost. He knew the end of the story. And that was a blessing. But at that moment, he was examining Peter. And this morning, is Jesus not coming to each one of us and saying, do you love me? I saw how it went this morning with you and your family, and I wonder about that. You haven't made yourself great to those little children. You haven't made my name great to those little children. You haven't made my name great to your wife like you ought to. Or maybe young person. There's some people here that have come from unfortunate home situations. Some people here that have chosen to follow Christ in spite of parents. But if you've done that, and yet you have not mirrored the Christ, the suffering Christ. Maybe Jesus is coming to you this morning and saying, do you love me? Or some of us that have been raised with lots of beautiful godly things, yet uh, maybe feels a little tight sometimes, a little restrictive or something. Jesus is saying, is the savor of Christ on your life? Is it evident to me and to all, all others? Is it very clear? And the last reason why the imperative is the key to joy, gladness, and fulfillment. If you can turn with me to Hebrews 1, verse 9. Writing of Jesus, and I believe of each one of us, this could be true. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with oil gladness above thy companions. Now, I told you earlier that we want to, um, we don't want to use an umbrella. And so you can start with yourself in this question, but also as you look around the professing church of Jesus Christ, is she marked most notably by joy and gladness? Is that the hallmark of her today? Can, can you say that, that, that that is the case or is there sometimes long faces? Is there sometimes some question marks? What about in our homes? Is there singing? Is there joy? Is there gladness? You know, I have a vision, brothers and sisters. And you can put your own community in here. I live in Lancaster County. Um, sometimes thought as the plain people capital of the world. Brothers and sisters, I have a longing for Lancaster County. 
I have a longing that one day I will ride a bicycle or a car or something down the back roads of Lancaster County at sunset. I have a longing to see the front porches of the back roads of Lancaster County filled with singing families singing the songs of Zion. Now we've had a lot of right doctrine and right teaching. We have a lot of good things, things we wouldn't want to lose. But I can tell you it's a pretty rare thing on the back roads of Lancaster County at sunset. To see Papa out there with the family Bible shepherding those olive plants and showing them the way to go. That thing of joy is sadly missing. I'm here today as a direct result of the prayers of praying grandma. It was through that my father came to Christ. She has prayed for her grandchildren. She's gone on to her reward. There was something else about that praying grandma. She was alone in the home. Grandpa was not a faithful man. He was not a a believer. He certainly wasn't full of the Holy Ghost. But in her trial, in her hard road that she had to hoe, she loved to sing. She loved to talk about her home. She was going to. What was true for Grandma as a lonely soldier? One day I was sitting down with Grandma and I prayed before she goes on to reward that I get a chance to hear her testimony. I wanted to know, the evidence was pretty overwhelming, but I just wanted to hear about her and Jesus and how was it. One day the Lord gave me that, but he gave me a lot more. She talked about her walk, and she said to me, Merle, he was so much more light than we do. We did when I was young. It was so dark. You know, that's, that's very humbling to me. It puts quite a responsibility on my shoulders to hear Grandma say that. And brothers and sisters, many of your parents never attended a Kingdom Fellowship weekend. Some of them have had experience of that, but many did. Many never did. What an opportunity. Would you not only order your steps in righteousness and true holiness, that the world may see there's a God in Israel, but may you labor in prayer for your community, for the songs designed to be heard. The other Sunday, I was in an assembly and uh, we sang this week the, the song, Heralds of Christ. And uh, I hadn't heard that song for a long time. But the assembly was being held on the porch of a house of a drunkard. He'd passed on. And down in the valley, in this, in this dark place, there was a man, an old man, and he was reflecting to the new family about the difference between their family and the other ones. And that song says, where funeral pyres burn, the children sing, and the sound of marching feet resound. That's the truth of that. Um, the, the monument, the, the, the greatness of that truth settled on my heart as they were singing that song. I just started weeping. Brothers and sisters, I long to see revival. I trust that's why many of us are here. And I'm so grateful when people labor in prayer, praying things like, Lord, prepare the way of the Lord, cast down the high places, exalt the low places. I'm very grateful for those prayers. I wouldn't want them to diminish in any way. Brothers and sisters, can I suggest this morning, there's a line drawn. And the Lord's not just asking us to pray. He is asking us to do that. But He's saying, will you prepare the highway for the King of Kings? Will your family have the songs of little children singing? 
Will you raise fathers and mothers, a godly home that will stand as testimony against this adulterous and sinful generation? Will you do it? Will, will you make your life first a mission field for Christ right where you are by the sanctification of the Holy Ghost permeating every area of your life? Will you ask God to turn up the heat and refine you though it cause you pain and suffering? I'm blessed with many young people that have got an answer this weekend and the answer was to wait. I'm excited about that. But you know, that can go two ways. One way is the redeemed way, where God redeems that waiting time. And like Paul, He can take you to the backside of the desert for a while. He can refine you. He can take you back to Tarsus, where you're not a celebrity and you're just another Pharisee boy. And they spit on you and beat you up. And misunderstand you. Maybe maybe you don't even have that, but just to abide that fire. But will you do it that the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering through you in this life? Yes, one day around the throne. Will you do it? Will you press in to the kingdom? The kingdom of heaven suffers violence by force. Uh, suffers violence and the violent take it by force. If you don't, the question is, do you have faith? And what does the scripture say? And how will it stand with you when you stand before the judge of all the earth? I would love to spend a lot more time on the next point, but time is moving on. Hindrances to the imperative, lack of repentance and surrender. I think we've heard enough of that already throughout this weekend and this morning. Unbelief may be, well, the biggest hindrance that is in our midst here this morning to the imperative, to walking this faith out. Maybe it's cheap grace, a, a, a decorated religious form of unbelief that says, oh, you say, wait a minute, Brother Merle, that, that's for those churches out there. I don't believe it. I've seen way too much cheap grace that uh, just kind of glazes over our sins, covers our sins, rather than delivers us out of and saves us from our sins. I hope the brother in our prayer group that shared this story won't mind that I share it. There's a young man in our prayer group that wanted to know the voice of God, wanted to hear the voice of God in his heart, wanted to know that voice, wanted to walk in it. And in a prayer, um, I felt led, prayer time I felt led to tell him, you can't know the voice of God in witnessing except that you walk with him day by day and prove him and learn him there. And he just told us a story this morning, happened a month or so ago. He was on the scene of a terrible crash. And somebody was killed in that uh, crash. But the Lord didn't have him there for the person that was killed in the crash. That, that, that person was already gone. But there was a man who had seemingly been drinking, st- sitting on the side of the road, with his head down saying, it's all my fault. And it was his fault. And uh, he sat there with his arms around him and as it came time to go and the emergency and police personnel were taking over the scene, the Lord whispered to this young man's heart and uh, said, give him your phone number. Now that seems like a very odd thing to do to a man that's been intoxicated and just caused a wreck. Sometimes the things the Lord asks us to do are odd things to do. And like so many of us, he didn't listen. 
didn't make sense. Let's don't, let's don't pick on him. Let's put ourselves in these things. We all have those times. We've had them. I'm glad that he learned the rest of the story, though it's a very sad one, because I know it will affect that young man and his listening. That man did go to jail. And in jail, that man tried to commit suicide. He was placed in the hospital in very serious condition. And without any further knowledge of what happened, that man slipped into eternity. Is obedience very important? We can have compassion for that man that maybe could add another chance. But there's a greater loss than that man suffering tonight or today in hell. And that is that man possibly could have brought praise to Jesus. He might have been able to tell some other people about Jesus. And that opportunity miss may be the greatest one. Self-righteousness, another form of unbelief. Trying to do it. We talked about that earlier. Let's close with fulfilling the imperative. I would love to read more scriptures, but I believe just share this. By faith, brothers and sisters, we can live in Canaan land this morning. We can live where the streams ever flow. Um, the song says, I've reached the land of corn and wine, and all its riches freely mine. Here shines undimmed one blissful day, for all my night has passed away. Oh, Beulah land, sweet Beulah land, as on thy highest mounts I stand and look away across the sea where mountains are prepared for me and view that shining glory show, my heaven, my home, forevermore. I was in a group of brothers one day and we were talking about the unclouded day, the song of the unclouded day and whether it was all theological correct. And the beautiful thing at the end of our discussion, it was brought out. Not only can there be an unclouded day when Jesus wipes all the tears away, and the thought was about Jesus coming in the clouds and all that, but He will wipe all tears away one day, but we can live in the unclouded day this day. This morning I heard, overheard two brothers talking about how they're doing. And the one brother was talking about his walk with Christ and how it wasn't dependent. You know, that unclouded day, that land of corn and wine, doesn't depend on the valley we're going through and the trials. Depends on our faith. Depends on the faith that's been proved by fire. Depends on where we're walking with Jesus, if we're walking with Him in the Spirit. Are you living in Canaan land this morning? Let's be real. Let's be honest. Are you really doing that? Is that your experience? Is it your life? Don't continue on in unbelief, brothers and sisters. Would you this morning, like Simon Stump, Take it once and for all and say, I'll seal my faith though it costs my blood and I will, I will step across this line. Not because I'm going to have, not going to have any more hard times or testing. Because I will by faith settle the choice. You can do that this morning. You, I believe the Lord is speaking to many of your hearts. I wouldn't try to go through a long list of applications. He will do that for you of what it is for you. You will never live in that unclouded day as long as you hold reserves. As long as you're not obedient. I was so thankful for the song. We never can prove the delights of His love until all on the altar we lay. Let's close by reading a scripture yet out of Hebrews 12. 
Start reading in verse 1. Let us therefore, having so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, laying aside every weight and sin which so easily entangles us, run with endurance the race that lies before us. How, looking steadfastly on Jesus, the leader and completer of faith, who in view of the joy lying before him, endured the cross, having despised the shame, and set down the right hand of the throne of God, For consider well him who endured so great contradiction from sinners against himself, that ye be not weary, fainting in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, wrestling against sin, and ye have quite forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou, when reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Dropping down to verse um, 11. But no chastening at the time seems to be a matter of joy, but a grief. But afterward yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those exercised by it. Wherefore, lift up the hands that hang down and the failing knees and make straight paths for your fate, feet, that that which is lame be turned not aside but that rather it may be healed. Pursue peace with all and holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. Drop yet down to verse 25. See that you refuse not him that speaks. For if those did not escape and refused him who uttered the oracles on earth, how much more we who turn away from him who does so from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once will I shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. But this yet once signifies the removing of what is shaken as being made, that what is not shaken may remain. Wherefore, let us receiving a kingdom not being shaken, have grace. Brothers and sisters, let us, because of this, receiving a kingdom not being shaken, have grace, by which let us serve God acceptable with casualness and carelessness and compromise and lukewarmness, and distraction, and the cares of this world choking it out. Is that what it says? Reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Is it not an imperative for us to, by faith, walk this life of obedience?